Hey, it's Michael, and welcome to another podcast episode. Before I get into today's episode, we wanted to make an offer to you. If you go to firmsconsulting.com, you will see a pop-up or you'll see a place to add in your email address or you can register on the Firms Consulting website. If you register onto that website, you get put into an exclusive list. And what you get in that exclusive list is samples of the content we have available to FC Insiders. So that said, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Hi, everyone. Before we jump into today's interview, if you guys could leave a review and a rating and also subscribe as well, that would be a huge help to the podcast. So if you actually enjoy the content and you would like to hear more of it, please support us by leaving us a review and subscribing to the podcast. Thank you in advance. All right, everybody. Today we have Kay Formanek. Kay is a former Accenture Managing Director and author of Beyond D&I, Leading Diversity with Purpose and Inclusion. She is founder and CEO of Diversity and Performance, a company that develops conscious diversity leaders. Kay also collaborates with leading institutions and business schools like INSEAD. Welcome, Kay. It's lovely to have you on the show. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be here and talking about diversity and inclusion and strategy. Kay, could you please tell us a little bit about yourself? You have been born in a country where you had legalized discrimination. It was a deliberate system to exclude people from opportunities. How did that impact you? And how diversity became the focus of your life's work? Thank you for the question. Uh, indeed, when I think about how it is that I am spending all my time and for the last 30 years focusing on diversity, inclusion, equity, I often say that it was born within South Africa. For as you correctly said, I grew up in South Africa at a time that we had apartheid and apartheid is legalized discrimination. But at the same time, my parents sent me to a multiracial boarding school. So on the one hand, you live in a society with discrimination, and on the other side, you have the privilege of interacting with all colors of the rainbow, your family. And as I observed this, I became deeply curious, why do people discriminate? Why do people have an unconscious bias? Why do we hardwire and use stereotypes and actually create in-groups and out-groups? And there was born my passion for diversity. Okay, and Nelson Mandela, I know, had a big impact on you. Can you tell us more about that? Yes, thank you. Uh, for me, Nelson Mandela is the role model of courageous, inclusive leadership. As you will know, he spent many, many years on Robben Island. Uh, he was there in prison and he was released. And many people thought that he would try to extend apartheid, but from the other side. But what Nelson Mandela recognized is that diversity brings benefits. And it is when you attract in diversity and embrace diversity and create the circumstances to work together, then great things can happen. And so what he did 
was really create a charter of a rainbow nation. He created a constitution where he defined diversity and diversity was not on, on the color of one's skin, but in terms of all the cultures and all one's talents. And he did the truth and reconciliation program where people had an opportunity to talk about what it meant to be discriminated against. And he created a dream of a nation that could be working together. So certainly for me, he is the epitome of a courageous, inclusive leader. He is an incredible man and what he have done for the country. He is a role model, not only for South Africans, but for the entire world. And we need more people like him. That's right. Okay, so diversity includes inherited characteristics and we talk a lot about it. Things like gender, ethnicity, race, but it's not limited to inherited characteristics. It can be our acquired characteristics, where we worked, where we were born, do we speak with an accent, what are our values? And it doesn't stop there, right? There are more layers. So to start our conversations on diversity, could you please define diversity for us? Thank you so very much. In fact, any organizational journey that I do around diversity, my first question is exactly the one that you asked. I speak to the leaders and say, what does diversity mean for you? And why is it important to your journey? And in the question, what does diversity mean for you? What I'm very interested is if the leaders are describing it in terms of the inherited characteristics, as you've said, or if they're also looking at the acquired characteristics, for example, specialization or cultural uh, know-how or even organizational uh, diversity. So for myself, diversity is when the person with their inherited characteristics and their acquired characteristics are embraced with all their diversity in an organization and they have an environment to leverage their talents to deliver on a purpose that unites the people. So diversity is not about differences for me. It is the exploration of the differences and the similarities so that together you can create wonderful things. Beautiful. A lot of discriminatory behavior happens because of what we experience in our childhood, which group we see as our group and which group we see as different from us, as you mentioned, in and out. And this has a lot to do with our survival brain. We need to know what is safe and what is not safe. And it becomes unconscious bias a preference to be with people like ourselves and with people who have characteristics like ourselves. And we see it everywhere. People often try to hire people just like them, be friends with people just like them, admit to universities, people just like them. Within consulting terms, you have been in consulting for a long time. I have been in consulting, not as much as you, but for a long time. And you often see a rainmaker partner will be mentoring and grooming someone who has characteristics just like them. You spent a lot of time studying diversity. Could you please help us gain a deeper understanding of why people discriminate 
And what are the primary drivers of that behavior? Thanks very much. So what you've already highlighted it is that when we talk about unconscious bias, it is important if one wants to have change, not to make people feel guilty about it. Because unconscious bias is simply that, it is unconscious. However, there is a responsibility once you're aware of it for you to be looking out uh, in terms of the biases. Now, why do they occur? So our brain is a magnificent organ in our body, 1.4 kilograms. And in fact, when we are born, in, it, there are very few uh, sort of bridges between concepts and associations. But through our life, from a baby right through to today, what occurs is we see things, we witness things, and we start developing what we call synopsis, bridges in our brain, which is a hard wiring in terms of who we think is good, who we think is bad, etc. Now, what occurs is that in today's complex world, there is a lot of information that comes towards our brain. And as exceptional as it is, we're not able to deal with all the inputs that we have. So only 10% of our brain is really our conscious thinking brain. Most of our thinking is unconscious and it is really filtered through all the hard wiring that we've developed during our time. So let me give you an example. You, are, you have been born and during your life, you've been exposed to films where the heroes have a certain character, a certain color, a certain gender, a certain way of doing things. In our brain, we start associating the hero with that type of figure. But on the other hand, we might be exposed to many stimuli which suggest that the bad people, you know, the skirks, have a different type of look. And in fact, very unwittingly, we associate people like that. The other thing that you mentioned that was very important is in terms of survival. When we look at our brain, our brain is divided in terms of our frontal cortex, our thinking brain. We then have our reptilian brain and our automatic brain. But what you were referring to is our reptilian brain. In our reptilian brain, it is all about survival. It is about what happens if my survival is at risk. And what in fact occurs is that our survival was dependent on very quickly identifying with a group that we felt safe with or a group that we should be running away from. And what is so interesting, that same processing in our brain is still active today. Thousands of years later, we meet someone and we immediately say, does that person belong? or does that person not belong? And when that person belongs and we identify with them, they become our in-group. And when someone is in your in-group, you are more empathetic to them. You're less strict. You give them the benefit of the doubt. But as soon as someone is in your art group, you look at them a little bit like a stereotype because you don't know too much about that person. You simplify who that person is. And in many cases, you expect the worst versus the better. And so it's absolutely critical to understand that we are doing this constantly. 
And we need to be very prudent and reflective in terms of what's happening. Thank you for sharing this. It's so important for our listeners to understand. In our society, what we are seeing now is we are talking more about discrimination. And we do see younger people being less biased versus the older generations because they grew up in a different world. And they are more aware that discrimination is not something that is acceptable. And they're just learning different things. They're exposed to different things. I'm very pleased to see that organizations are starting to look at diversity as not only as nice to have or because of the legal requirements, but now there is an emerging understanding that diversity improves performance. Leaders are starting to recognize that in order to serve younger generations and attract younger generations to work for the company, they have to take diversity very seriously. What is the importance to organizations of effectively addressing this diversity issue? It is critical. What you're highlighting is that before, diversity could be check box ticking, or it could be something that was a sort of side pillar. And more and more organizations are recognizing that diversity is and will be more fundamental to their very survival. Let me say why. You mentioned the younger people, less biased, more stimuli that are, are taking place, especially when you look at Generation Z. These are people who are 22 and under. It is one of the most diverse groups, uh, generations that we've ever had. But not only that, when you look at what is important to the Generation Z, they mention five key things every single time. They talk, yes, about sustainability. They're very concerned about equality or uh, the lack of uh, equality. Uh, they are very much looking at authentic uh, leaders, purpose-driven and diversity. And so in order to be attracting this generation and also the younger millennials is you're needing to show as an organization that you're not doing it because it is a checkbox, but you're doing it because it's fundamentally attached to your purpose. You also mentioned something very important, which is performance. What we are seeing, and it's really changed, is first organizations looked at diversity because of compliance. Let us not have a class action. You know, let's not have a quota issue. And more and more since 2003, there was a focus on more innovation and engagement and bottom line performance. What is really developing in terms of the case for diversity are two other cases. The one is what we call the ethical moral case. Many younger generations are saying, I wish to ensure that there is an ethical reason uh, because it's the right thing to do. And the other thing, and it's attached to the UN sustainability goals, many organizations are looking at diversity as a lever to enable their organization to support the achieve, achievement of the sustainability goals, like better access, uh, gender parity, et cetera. 
Okay, in your book, you mentioned the elements that lead to diversity performance. Could you please share with us those elements? Absolutely. We have had organizations first focusing just on diversity. And when I talk about diversity, it's diversity dimensions, as we've already spoken. And increasingly, we've looked at inclusion. When we talk about inclusion, we're talking about psychological safety. Because what is the point of having diversity if that diversity is not going to bring its perspectives? Because it doesn't feel safe to bring those perspectives. But in fact, the research that I've done and the experience over the 50 plus organizations is that there are three extra elements that are fundamental to getting the diversity performance. In addition to diversity and inclusion, we're talking about equity. And equity is a misunderstood word. It actually means access, fairness to resources. It is understanding that because of systemic bias, institutional bias, personal bias, that in fact, people don't come to an organization equal. In fact, they have different access to sponsors, networks, uh, to, to assets. So equity is critical. And that allows diversity coming in also to have the access that is needed to perform. In addition to equity, you need what I talk about inclusive leadership. 70% of the perception of an inclusive environment is directly impacted by the rituals, actions, behaviors of a leader. If people hear that an organization is seeking diversity, but they look at their leaders who perhaps are very non-inclusive, who uh, always invite the same people to the strategic programs, the people who can't even define what diversity means to them or why it's important, and who do not regulate an environment, then especially the younger generations say, I don't believe this whole narrative around diversity. So leadership is important. And the last one is purpose. I believe that one of the biggest barriers to actually advancing diversity is that it's not run strategically. There is not that connection of diversity is fundamental to our transformational journey. And without diversity, it means that this and this and this is not going to occur. So the five points are diversity dimensions, inclusion, equity, leadership and purpose. And when those five elements are together, organizations have a better and a higher probability of actually delivering the diversity performance that they're looking at. And what you said about 70%, another important insight related to it is the power each leader has in making their impact within the organization in terms of how much of what they do actually counts versus what the organization does as a whole. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, um, often when I go into organizations, the leaders uh, say, you know, let's ensure that this development occurs and that communication has to occur. And uh, this is how we're going to be rating people. And I say, these are great ideas, 
but we are forgetting the most important step. And the most important step is you. And this is why often, in terms of a diversity journey, one of the first things that I recommend organizations to do is have the discussion that you and I are having. What is diversity? Why is diversity important for your strategic journey? What dimensions are important? What is your role in advancing diversity? What are the practices of an inclusive leader? How do you as an inclusive leader have courageous discussions? Do you have the benefit of deep listening skills? You know, when leadership has that kind of narrative and insight, then they can start flexing the inclusive environment, but they really need to be walking the talk of diversity. Hey, you also speak about five stages of diversity in your book. What are those five stages and what our listeners need to know about those stages? So the five stages are so important because just as you and I have been speaking about, so what do we even mean about diversity? What I often see in organizations, I ask them, so what stage of diversity do you want to get to? And it's almost they feel that there is one level of diversity, it's not. So the research that was done and has been brought out in uh, the book is that there are five evolutionary stages of diversity. The first stage is organizations that pursue diversity for the compliance. They simply do not want to have a compliance issue. They don't want to have discrimination class actions. They do not want to be penalized legally. And that is fair. They are very honest, which saying, we wish to have at a minimum, the diversity that assures us that we are not going to have a legal penalty. The second stage of diversity evolution is also a little bit of a push because it is the organization say, I want to have the compliance, but in addition, I do not want to be penalized by my internal and external stakeholders. So I'm going to look at what at minimum my customers and clients are asking of me and my employees. So these are organizations who once again, trying not to be penalized, not just legally, they want to at a minimum satisfy the requirements so customers don't boycott them and employees don't boycott them. You then have the third um, a level, which we call organizational performance. It becomes a little bit of a pull for diversity. These are organizations who are not being pushed to take diversity. They really believe that there is especially a business case. They are convinced that there is a return on equity, there's increased revenue growth, there is increased customer loyalty, there is more engagement from their people, there is better decision-making. There's been a lot of research from McKinsey around that. And these organizations are saying, we want diversity, not just to have diversity through metrics, but because we want to associate it with improved performance. And I would say most, 60% of organizations are really in the stage trying to drive diversity to performance. And then you have two other stages. The fourth stage is what we call the transformational organizations. These are 
organizations who are looking at diversity, not only for the performance, but because they believe that without a sort of 360 degree perspective on the external environment, they're not gonna survive. They're not gonna be agile. They're not going to be able to reinvent themselves. And so they're very anxious to have the diversity because of diversity of perspectives. And last but not least, you've got organizations, and we could talk about a couple, who really have advanced through the evolutionary stages and are looking at diversity, not only as an anchor for themselves, you know, to have better performance, more reinvention and transformation, but because they really see that diversity as a strategic anchor will allow them to have benefits within their supply chain and ultimately in uh, terms of society. Okay, and in terms of that fifth stage, what would be some great examples? Well, I would say that Unilever uh, is a very good example. And let me uh, mention why. You know, if you look at uh, the uh, website even on Unilever, they immediately um, say, this is what we believe in terms of equity, diversity, inclusion, that is not only good for Unilever, but it is critical in terms of the achievement of a sustainable world. They immediately link their diversity objectives directly to two of the sustainability development goals, which is number five, which is gender equality, and the other one, which is economic access, um, uh, uh, et cetera. So they are very linking um, of uh, uh, their focus, which doesn't mean they're not looking for the performance. They believe that diversity allows better customer congruence, what I'm talking about, a better understanding of their consumers that they're servicing. But they're very much focused, not only diversity inside uh, Unilever, but diversity within their ecosystem of vendors and together that they have an impact in terms of a more sustainable environment. And my guess will be that companies like that also have this focus on how do we make the world a better place. It's not just about me, it's about us. And diversity becomes a part of it. It's an important part of that focus on doing it beyond just making money. Yeah. But yeah. doing it for the greater good, leaving the world better off than when the executives that run those companies came into this world. We spoke earlier about inclusive leadership and we have many amazing leaders listening to this right now. Could you share with us some effective rituals that has been proven to be effective to become a more inclusive leader? So there are a number of traits of an inclusive leaders and I'm going to be talking about them and uh, also talking about the rituals because Inclusive leadership is not academic. Actually, it is walking the talk. You know, often I say that you can't lead diversity with the mind. You have to leave diversity with the mind, the heart, and the will. And those are inclusive leaders. So, first of all, inclusive leaders are able to authentically declare 
why diversity is important to them and how it links to the importance for their organization. You know, uh, they will always be talking about their personal commitment to the values of respect, belonging, safety, inclusion. The second thing is that inclusive leaders are those who are deeply conscious of their personal bias and are able to identify the talent blind spots in the organization. Now that is not easy. I mean, as you and I were talking, there are more than 150 cognitive biases. You don't know what you don't know. And so what you need is to start working on it, getting feedback from people. What are the things that I do that unintentionally exclude? What are the talent blind spots? You talked of one, the sort of mini me bias. I like people who look like me, uh, you know, past performance bias. It's important for inclusive leaders to really make time and effort on that. The other thing that is really important is what we call a, uh, a courageous, uh, a regulator. An inclusive leader does not allow a discriminatory practice or a bias to occur. It is a person with humility, not like a parent with lots of judgment, but really in a humble way says, let's talk about what has just happened here. It is no doubt unwitting. How can we do better together as a group? You know, it's that group uh, responsibility. Uh, it's someone who's culturally intelligent. Uh, it's someone who allows uh, collaboration, uh, etc. So, you know, there are a number of characteristics. And I think what is important is in terms of the rituals. Uh, today, I, I was actually doing a workshop and we were talking about, so what can you do as a leader? You know, let's make it practical. It is someone who's, self, who's regulating. So for example, someone is opening a meeting and actually checks in. You know, before we start our agenda today, let me check in, how are you doing? Is anyone uh, got anything uh, to say that they need to leave early or whatever? So let's put that tension aside. Number two, it's someone who understands who are the extroverts and who are the introverts in the team, who ensure that the extroverts don't dominate by inviting the introverts to say something. It's someone who knows that if you are speaking in a meeting with English, for example, that is your second language or third language, you will be three seconds too slow to respond to any question. And it's not because you don't want to respond to the question, you simply are trying to formulate your words. That inclusive leader will immediately say, for example, Chris, you know, how wonderful to have the meeting. Why don't we start with you sharing your perspective? You know, it's giving the stage. Inclusive leaders allow people to demonstrate their leadership by circulating the chairing of a meeting, simply to have that diversity. And what occurs is when, when people see leaders do this, they start emulating them. There is a light that is almost released and you start doing that with your team. So the question is so important. It is about the mind, the heart, the will to be practicing inclusivity day to day as a leader. In terms of diversity programs, in your work, you discovered that 80% of dollars spent on diversity programs in the US 
may not have led to impact. What were the major causes of that? What should have been done better? And what are some diversity initiatives you have seen that had a positive impact? So indeed, this 80% is built from a number of research studies that is really looking at what I call efficacy, the return on investment. And are the dollars actually moving the needle on diversity? And the answer is no. In fact, billions of investment in diversity, which are intended to mitigate bias, increase awareness, get people to be, uh, be more inclusive, have resulted in more bias, people feeling, in fact, very hostile to diversity, etc. So what is going wrong? Well, it starts with the strategy. You and I talked that step number one is being very clear on the strategic journey of the organization. Step two is being clear on why will diversity assist that journey and what dimensions of diversity will assist that journey. Three, what level, what stage of diversity performance do we need? You and I spoke about it. Are we looking for organizational performance or do we really have to flex diversity to have better perspectives and be transformational? What level are we going? And I ask that because dependent on what level you're targeting for your diversity performance depends what type of level of capability you need. There are six diversity capabilities that need to be in place regardless of whether you're stage one, two, three, four, five. However, for each of these six capabilities, you need to do more if you're stage four versus stage two. I'll give you an example. We've been talking about unconscious bias. If you are stage one and you simply don't want to have discrimination, what you would be doing is having anti-discrimination compliance training for everyone. You're trying to tell people the do's and don'ts. If you are, for example, stage three, you need to absolutely ensure that there is a large group of people who are involved around the talent processes, that they are educated on bias, they know how to mitigate bias and processes are de-biased. But if you really want to go into stage five, it's not just about de-biasing your processes internally, but it is within, for example, your ecosystem, your supply chain, et cetera. So there are a number of things that you have to do. The last thing that I have really seen in terms of why investments are not moving the needle is that a lot of the investments are done top-down by often a homogeneous group that thinks that they know what investments give value to the beneficiaries. There is not enough questioning to the un underrepresented people of an organization saying, what investments will allow you to succeed? What equity or access to resources are you missing? What kind of policies would really assist you stepping up. And because so many things are non-strategic, focused on things 
that are actually enlarging stereotypes versus reducing them and not being clear on the level of capability nor asking people for their input, you're having about 80% of the investments going to, into things that are either not valued or are not actually effective in causing change. Okay, let's talk a little bit about recruitment. Could you please share with us some examples of where either unconscious or conscious bias might come through at the time of recruitment or even before recruitment begins? For example, say when the job profile is written. Very good. So when one looks at bias, one indeed needs to look at the whole talent life cycle from the time that a job is in fact promoted uh, to the time that people are selected to attend the recruiting interview, to the recruiting interview, the evaluation, and obviously if they have been hired, how they are being immersed within the organization and promoted. Now, you mentioned one. What we have seen, and thankfully there is software that is supporting organizations identify it, many roles are written in a very masculine way. And as a result, a lot of female applicants are feeling like they're not gonna fit this role because the wording simply doesn't resonate. And this is also a generational thing. We often write roles in a very traditional way when our younger people coming through want to see things with a little bit more freedom and uh, not as boxed and things like that. Then we have a point where people are invited for the interview. Now, at that point, there are already more than 30 biases that may arise. I think you know that there is what we call a beauty bias, that if someone is tall or beautiful or handsome, there is a unconscious preference, you know, that they're gonna be successful or so. You have a dress code uh, a bias in terms of how you look, are you going to fit in? You've got a couple bias. In Anglo-Saxon societies, we place a lot of value that our candidate looks at you in the eyes, but in many cultures, a sign of respect is to lower your eye, not to give the hand because there shouldn't be a physical contact. Now, if you don't know that, that will be a bias which says, well, why is Kay not looking in my eyes or why is she not taking my um, hand? So there are all these cues that are taking place. Now, what we also see in terms of recruiting is there's a lot of bias in the type of questions that are asked. So open-ended questions are a beautiful time where you can have bias. So if, for example, everything is demonstrate your competency, your skills, and then you ask someone in your last pre uh, paragraph, please explain other things that came to your mind. Those are places where your biases can come through. You talked about in-group, out-group. Those are the areas where those in-group and out-group will be triggered. What we've also seen is hobbies. Um, hobbies are a big cue for bias. Um, there was a research which showed that if your resume said 
that you did, for example, polo versus that you got a student award at the athletics uh, uh, club, that there was an anticipation that the one came from a very wealthy family and probably with good connections and the other uh, needed a bursary uh, to get uh, to university. So hobbies has been uh, shown to be a very large bias area. So what is important in terms of this recruiting is in fact to try to slow down and to remove the biases. And one of the things in terms of COVID, it has meant that many people are doing their interviews virtually. And in fact, you will find that some of the traditional biases have been minimized because in fact, people have access, you don't see their height, you don't really see their clothing, and uh, they really need to talk about uh, who, who they are and their competencies. Hey, could you give us an example of how lack of diversity can result in significant negative impact for an organization? Perhaps the story of the Central Bank of Ireland from your book or any other example you would like to share? Very good. So let us in fact pick up the Central Bank of Ireland. And for uh, the listeners today, you may remember in 2008, there was a global financial collapse. Now at that stage, many of the central banks needed to fulfill their mandate. And the mandate was to protect their citizens and to reduce risk. Now on the eve of the collapse of Lehman Brothers, the central bank leadership in Ireland was asked how they were faring, whether they thought it was high risk, and whether they felt that they could anticipate and manage the risk. And the answer was yes, we're sitting in a very good position. A day later, the whole financial system collapsed in Ireland. Two of the banks needed to be bailed out. And the government had to step in to support the risk management thereafter. So there was a commission, a parliamentary commission, to evaluate how could this happen? Why could the central bank not fulfill its mandate? And it was very interesting in terms of the outcome of this commission. In fact, one of the biggest findings was that this lack of response and this lack of risk management could be seen to be a lack of diversity. Now, if we look at the Bank of Ireland's central bank and many others, you traditionally had an older leadership group, mostly male, mostly with the same uh, education and specialization, even sometimes with the same type of career path. And so what occurs is you've got a blind spot because you've got a reinforcement of a view of the world that is simply limited. We were talking about organizations that need to be transformative with their diversity and wishing to have a 360 degree. Well, if you only have a reinforced in-group, you have maybe a 90% view of the landscape. And as a result, and what I think is an excellent story about the Central Bank of Ireland, diversity moved 
not to not from a nice a nice to have it became a fundamental in fact people said for our very survival we're going to need to have diversity and they did exactly the steps that we were talking about step one let us reconfirm our mandate in terms of what do we need to do as an organization number two what diversity dimensions do we need to be successful in our mandate and they looked at this very carefully and they said there is a gender uh, capability that we have and this is because many boards that have a good gender parity are shown to in fact be better at managing risk better in terms of having the discussions they also realized specializations it can't be all from the same university studying the same things they wish to have liberal arts and they wish to have economics and they wish to, uh, to have law and different disciplines. They also wish to have age diversity. And they very much saw that there was a sentiment of either having people who are over optimistic or people who are very negative. They actually needed both of these type of people. We call it a personality element. So what they did is to say, in order to fulfill our mandate, this is the spectrum of diversity we need. And now let us see what the gap is. And systematically, they reduced the gap, building up in terms of gender parity, specialization parity, personality parity. And um, I think it is a very important story. So what we need as organizations is to understand that diversity is moving with such a swiftness given stakeholder requirements and the complexity of the environment that diversity is not gonna be a nice to have anymore. It will be fundamental. And my anticipation, Chris, is that actually we're going to have organizations moving more and more or trying to move from stage three to stage four to be able to be agile in this complex environment. 100% agree. Talking about a limited view of the world, let's talk about representation of underrepresented groups. Yes. And it's an emotional topic. In a number of countries, if you don't meet a certain hard quota for gender diversity, for example, of the boards, professorships, and things like that, there are consequences. Could you please let us know, based on your research, what those mandates have done? How much did it help? And what needs to be done better? So it is an emotional topic. And what is very, very interesting to see is those countries, those organizations who do not have quota or mandates are very emotional and very negative to quotas and mandates. And interestingly enough, those nations and organizations that have done the mandates and quotas are very positive. So what I want to first say, it all depends on where you're standing. What is important, however, is those organizations that have gone through these mandates have seen that the needle on diversity is moving. And the reason for it, it isn't any longer a nice to have. 
there is some kind of repercussion to not advancing it. I see it myself in the Netherlands. Uh, as you have mentioned, there are many countries in the Europe that have quotas, have at least 30% in terms of boards and various. And in fact, if you don't have that, you don't get subsidies, you sometimes don't get government uh, uh, contracts, um, or you're not even allowed to uh, appoint uh, some, some trustees or commissioners. And so there is a penalty. And what has happened is that in response to that penalty, people start doing the work that needs to be done. Many organizations or countries that say we don't want to have quota always bring up the quality. Yes, we don't have enough. We don't want to compromise, etc. Your question was, so what is the history saying and what is the research said? Well, the research is saying that quota has not accommodated the quality of the leadership. So all the countries that have instituted it, who have now examined it, do not see that there was a negative performance at all. The only thing that they found is that when you put quota, it tends, if you don't do other interventions, to consolidate board positions with a few women when we're talking about gender. And so what is important is that they've seen that there was then diversity in the top ranks, which didn't trickle down to the bottom ranks. And so I think the learning lesson is that when you're managing mandates, Clearly, your representation at leadership is important, but you need to manage the talent line to ensure that you're having that type of quota or ratio right through your organization or at least moving towards it. This is a great place to end this episode. Before we do that, do you have anything else you would like to add or share? And if you could please give our listeners three actionable steps they can take on Monday morning at 8 a.m. to become a more inclusive leader. My parting uh, statement is as follows. The one I've said already, diversity is leading with the mind, the heart, the will. I have not ever seen the diversity journey being successful without leaders walking the talk in a courageous way and simply saying, we're gonna do it because I believe in it and we believe it as an organization. That is step number one. Step number two is diversity is not a project. It doesn't have a start and an end. Diversity needs to be seen as a journey. And in order to sustain that journey, you need to have people who are inspired and passionate to support you. We've spoken a lot about leaders. Leaders cannot do it without a grassroots. And the grassroots champions are certainly the younger people, but many other people who want to stand up and say, I want to play a role into that. So these are two very important things to consider. Now, in terms of the three things that can be done on Monday morning, 
The first one is at the start of your meeting, have a simple question to the group and say, what does diversity mean for you? And how does it make you feel? And I ask that question because one of the biggest issues is that if you don't define it in a uniform way for your organization, you second guess one another. And if you don't speak about the emotion, it means that it's difficult to lead. So step number one, simply have the discussion about diversity and ask the question. Step number two, bias. We spoke about bias a lot, but you don't know what you don't know. So step two, go to your team and say to them, I am incentivized to be an inclusive leader. I know I may have blind spots. Please feel welcome to give me feedback because I would learn, because that's what a diversity leader is, humble, willing to take feedback, to learn. And by asking that question, you allow other people to ask the question for themselves to others, and you have this conversation about bias. Number three, and I started it with this and I'll end with it. Be clear why diversity is fundamental to your strategic journey of your organization. It doesn't take a lot of time to think through it, but there must be a compelling reason. And once you've got that compelling reason, it allows you to sustain a journey which can be difficult. Because at the end of the day, it won't be on the side, but it will be in the center of your strategy. And that is the only way that diversity can get wings. It needs to be part and parcel of your organizational strategy. So thank you, Chris. Thank you, Kay. Where can listeners find you? And of course, I encourage everyone listening to get Kay's book and we're going to include the link in the show notes. Thank you very much. Um, so uh, the book that you so generously refer to is going to be coming out uh, in uh, November, a hard copy, also ebook uh, in the United States and then all the uh, continents and will be translated to a number of uh, languages. Um, there is a book site where people can see everything. They can play with all the models that we've been speaking about. And the book site is called Beyond diversityandinclusion.com. So beyond diversity and A-N-D inclusion.com. And if they want to reach me, they can send an email at k at beyond diversity and inclusion.com. And uh, would be thrilled to have uh, a connection and to reply uh, to any questions. It's, it's a beautiful topic. Great, thank you very much, Kay. Thanks everyone again for tuning in. My guest today again has been Kay Formanek. Make sure to check out Kay's book. It's called Beyond D and I, Leading Diversity with Purpose and Inclusion. And I will see you all next time. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, 
and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com. It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you want to get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I want to thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting.